Well, please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you, will, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahuyael, and Mahuyael fathered Matushael, and Matushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. 
For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we often can grow discouraged and disheartened as we look at what's going on in the world today, our society and culture. We can grow discouraged by the lack of influence that the church has upon our society. We can grow discouraged by our culture's animosity towards the true church. We can grow discouraged because many of the the movers and shakers of culture, those who are shaping culture, those who are influential in our society today, majority of them do not profess the Christian faith. We can grow discouraged as we consider the depravity of our surrounding society and the rapid acceleration of the sexual revolution in our midst. Do you find yourself discouraged and disheartened as you think about the state of our society at large, the state of the church at large. As you think about the world in which you are presently raising kids or the world in which you will have to raise your kids, do you find yourself discouraged and disheartened? If so, Genesis chapter 4 is a very applicable chapter for us to consider. Genesis chapter 4 is essentially God fleshing out Christ's promise that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Genesis chapter 4 is teaching us about the context in which God promises to build his church. Genesis chapter 4 is teaching us about the context in which God promises to build his church. In this chapter, we see that God builds his church despite conflict. Conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Despite conflict between the church and the world. We shouldn't take suffering and persecution and conflict as evidence that God's plans for his kingdom are being thwarted. We see in this chapter that God is building his church in the midst of a culture which oftentimes has unbelievers flourishing more than believers. God builds his church despite the depravity of any given society throughout history. Now as we consider these characteristics, conflict, um, cultural influence, depravity. Oftentimes we interpret these characteristics as reasons to doubt that God is building his church and kingdom in this age. However, Genesis 4 tells us that we should actually expect these things. And these things are the precise context in which God promises to be building his church and his kingdom in this age. You know, for those of you who run cross country here, which I know there's a few of you, or if you've ever ran, uh, run a road race before, a 5K, a 10K, a 10K, a half marathon, or even a marathon, it's generally speaking pretty helpful to know what the 
the course is going to be like. Is it going to be hilly or flat? Is the terrain going to be pavement or grass or gravel? What's the weather forecast look like for the day of your race? These things are helpful so that your expectations can be properly oriented. Well, in the same way, Genesis 4 is seeking to orient our expectations for what life in this world is like, the same world in which God promises to build his kingdom and his church. And so this morning, we are going to consider Genesis chapter 4 as the context in which God promises to build his church. As we do this, we're going to focus our minds upon three primary points. First, God builds his church despite conflict. Second, God builds his church in the midst of a culture which oftentimes has unbelievers flourishing more than even believers. And last of all, God builds his church despite the depravity of any given society. We will notice that Genesis chapter 4 begins with this reference to how Adam and Eve are fruitful and multiplying and beginning to fill the earth. They have two sons, Cain, who is their firstborn, and he is a worker of the ground, and Abel, who is the secondborn, and he is a shepherd. Well, shortly into Genesis chapter 4, we read that both Cain and Abel present an offering to the Lord as, as part of their worship. Cain's offering is rejected, while Abel's offering is accepted. Now, why? Why does God accept Cain's, or excuse me, reject Cain's offering and accept Abel's offering? Well, we see that Abel worshiped God in spirit and in truth. This is how Jesus tells us that we are to worship God. Abel worships God in spirit and in truth. In the Old Testament, God called his people to present an offering to him of the best of their flocks and of their harvest. This was part of their worship. Abel is doing this. He is bringing the best of his flock, the firstborn of his flock and the fat portion. He is worshiping God in truth. He is worshiping God the way God desires to be worshiped. Presumably, this revelation about how Cain and Abel were to worship God was made known to them at this point in history. And so Abel worships God in truth. But Abel also worships God in spirit in that his worship proceeds from a heart of true faith. Again, boys and girls, you may remember that Heidelberg Catechism question of what are good works? Good works proceed from a heart of true faith. And thus we see Abel is worshiping God in truth and in spirit. And consequently, God accepts his worship. His worship is acceptable worship in the sight of God. Cain, on the other hand, does not worship God in truth. Notice that he doesn't give the best of his harvest. He just gives a portion of his harvest. And furthermore, Cain's worship does not proceed from a heart of true faith. Cain does not have true faith, and thus Cain does not worship God in spirit and in truth. And consequently, God does not find Cain's worship acceptable. In fact, right after this episode, God tells Cain that, Cain, if you would do well, you would be accepted. If you would worship me the way I, I have told you to worship me, your worship would be accepted. But Cain is seeking to worship God 
according to his preference, according to his imagination, according to what feels right to him. Now this point is an important point for us to dwell upon. Uh, Oftentimes in our current day and age, most people think that as long as we worship God in a way that feels right to us, then that is acceptable worship. As long as we're worshiping God in an authentic manner, then God will be pleased. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that acceptable worship is worship that's done according to his word. God has told us in no uncertain terms how he wants to be worshiped on the Lord's day. And so we are not to be uh, imaginative when it comes to how we do worship. We are to be content with God's revelation. We are to be like Abel and not Cain. And so the question we should ask when it comes to the church's worship is not whether or not it feels right to us, but whether or not it is biblical. It conforms to God's prescription for worship. Many of you even right now today may think that there are certain aspects of our liturgy that feel wrong to you or that you just don't like. And that's really a secondary or tertiary issue. The main issue is whether or not what we do in our liturgy is biblical, if it conforms to God's prescription. And so we are all called to worship God in spirit and in truth. This is how our worship will be acceptable in the sight of our God. Well, now what is Cain's response to God rejecting his worship? What does Cain do? Well, he takes Abel out to the field and he slays Abel. He murders his brother. Who is Cain imaging here? Is he imaging Yahweh or is he imaging the serpent? Well, he is imaging his father. This shows us that Cain is of the line of the seed of the serpent. Even though he comes forth from the womb of Eve, ultimately Cain is of the line of the seed of the serpent and Abel, at least originally was thought to be of the line of the seed of the woman. At this moment, we should have Genesis 3.15 ringing in our ears. Remember what we read last week in Genesis 3.15? As God is cursing the serpent, he tells the serpent that he, God, that is to say, God will place enmity between you and the woman, between his offspring and your offspring. Well, we see that enmity right here in Genesis chapter 4. Cain slays Abel, his brother. Imagine how Adam and Eve would have felt at this moment. For all we know, Adam and Eve may have thought that Abel was the one. Abel was the seed. Abel was the second Adam who would be appointed to crush the head of the serpent. But to them... It probably felt as if the serpent beat God. The serpent crushed the head of the second Adam. The serpent snuffed out the gospel promise of Genesis 3.15. Yet, if you skip down to the end of this chapter, what do you read? You read that God provides another son to Adam and Eve, Seth who is himself a forefather to Christ and the continuation of the seed of the woman. God builds his church despite conflict. The conflict, the persecution, the suffering that we see here in Genesis chapter 4 does not thwart God's plan 
of continuing this line of the seed of the woman. It does not thwart God's plan for building his church and his kingdom. God builds his church despite conflict and suffering. If we're honest with ourselves, we, we may feel the way Adam and Eve may have felt the day of Abel's death. It may seem as if the serpent is winning, as if the true church is just a smoldering, glowing wick in this current age. However, we cannot let suffering or conflict or persecution or even the lack of cultural clout diminish our confidence in God's promise to build his church in this age. God builds his church despite conflict. Well, God, after Cain slays his brother, comes to Cain. And you'll notice that God curses Cain. He tells Cain that Cain's work will forever be toilsome and unproductive. This really is a reiteration of that original curse that God issued to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. God also says to Cain that he will forever be a fugitive and a wanderer throughout the earth. What's Cain's response to this curse? Well, he says, God, this, this punishment is greater than I can bear. Whoever finds me will kill me. God then graciously tells Cain, well, Cain, whoever kills you will receive a sevenfold punishment. This phrase, sevenfold punishment, refers to a proportionate punishment, a punishment that fits the crime. God is promising to preserve the life of Cain by administering justice. And God then places a mark on Cain, which serves as a symbol to others of this divine pledge. God here is essentially promising two things. One, he is promising that he will establish a judicial system or structure for justice to be administered. Again, notice what God is promising here. He's promising Cain that whoever kills him will receive a sevenfold punishment. The question is, by whom? Well, presumably by some sort of judicial system or structure that God will establish. Second, God also is promising that this judicial system that he will establish will serve not only the church, but also the descendants of the seed of the serpent. All image bearers. The privilege of living in a just society is not a privilege that's exclusive to the church. It's for all image bearers. Because God promises to set up a judicial system to preserve the line of Cain, Cain's line flourishes. Notice how Cain's line flourishes in this chapter. Cain is the first builder of cities. He's the first person to build a city. Then we see that his descendant, Jabal, is a successful shepherd. There's evidence in the text here that he actually was a lot more innovative as a shepherd than Abel. Abel was was merely um, caring for his flock as a means of personal sustenance. But we see with uh, Jabal that he was actually trading uh, livestock and had livestock, uh, herds upon herds. And so we see that Jabal was actually um, 
quite innovative when it came to the field of husbandry. Then we see that, that Jubal is a, the first musician. Tubal Cain is the first metallurgist. And so who are the first developers of culture? Who are the first developers of culture? Not those who descend from the seed of the woman, not those who are members of God's covenant community, but rather those who are members of the seed of the serpent. Those who are outside the church, those who don't confess Yahweh to be the, the maker of heaven and earth. How do we make sense of this? Well, God pours out his common and preserving grace upon all people. God's common grace is common. As Jesus says, he allows the sun to rise on the just and the unjust and sends rains upon the wicked and the righteous alike. We as members of the church have no more right to God's common and preserving grace than unbelievers who do not know the Lord. We who are members of the church have no more right to God's common and preserving grace than those who are outside the church. Just because you are a Christian does not mean that God promises you more success and competency in your given vocation because you are a Christian. God pours out his common and preserving grace upon all people. And we see that evidenced here in Genesis chapter 4 as the most successful members of culture, the first developers of culture, were those outside the covenant community, those who descended from the line of Cain. If we look out at our world today, most of the, uh, the, the most successful members of society, of culture, the leaders of big business, the innovators, the entrepreneurs, those who are creating new cultural products and technology, most of them do not profess the Christian faith. How do we make sense of that? Well, God pours out his common and preserving grace upon all people. At times, we are tempted to judge the state of God's kingdom by how many influential Christian politicians, business owners, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs they are, there are in our world today. However, Genesis 4 reminds us that that's a bad litmus test to judge the state of God's kingdom. Here, our general expectation should be that God will continue to build his church and kingdom in the midst of a culture in which oftentimes unbelievers flourish more than believers. And we can thank God for this because he pours out his common grace upon all. And so God builds his church in the midst of this type of culture and society. Well, towards the end of, of Genesis chapter 4, we see not only God's common grace upon the line of Cain, but we also see human depravity exemplified in the line of Cain. These are two things that we have to uphold in tension. That God preserves his image in man in a fallen form. And so Lamech is exhibit A when it comes to human depravity in mankind at large. Notice what we read in verse 23. Lamech says to his wives. Now what sounds off to you about, about this verse? Well, there are multiple wives. Lamech does not leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He holds fast to his wives. Now remember last week we considered how after Adam, Adam and Eve sinned, our first parents were naked and ashamed. They were divorced. 
That was the first divorce in human history. One of the results of our first parent's sin is that we all have a natural inclination to pervert this creational institution of marriage, and we have the natural inclination to pervert the sexual norms that God established in creation. We see this evidenced right here in Genesis 4 with Lamech. He is perverting God's original institution for marriage as he is the first polygamist. We also see Lamech perverting God's design for justice. Notice also what we see in verses 23 and 24. Lamech says, a young man has hit me, and therefore what what do I desire to do? I'm going to kill him. That's not justice, that's unjust revenge. Justice is seeking a proportionate punishment. A punishment that fits the crime. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Lamech doesn't care about justice. He just wants revenge. And his vision for revenge is actually unjust. But notice, it's on the heels of this depravity that we learn that Eve gives birth to another son. Seth, who, as I already mentioned, is the forefather to Christ and the continuation of the seed of the woman. And thus, God builds his church precisely within the context of a depraved society. So again, we shouldn't look at the depravity that we see in our own society, our world, the suffering and persecution that may come our way as evidence that God's plan to build his kingdom are being thwarted. No, God builds his kingdom in the context of depravity. And so this chapter is all about the context, the context, the the nature of the world in which God builds his church. So as we witness conflict and suffering and persecution in our world, we shouldn't be alarmed. As we witness the fact that most of the the influential members of our culture are in fact non-Christians, we shouldn't be alarmed, but rather we should thank God for his common grace. As we look out into our world and we see depravity, We shouldn't be alarmed. God is still in the business of building his church and his kingdom through the preaching of his word, the administration of his sacraments, and the exercise of Christian discipline and discipleship. In a few moments, we will have the privilege of coming once again to the Lord's table. And when we come to the Lord's table, we are having communion with the blood of Christ. We are having communion with the blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 The author reminds us that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel was crying out for justice to be satisfied. And what does Christ's blood uh, preach? Well, Christ's blood preaches that justice has been satisfied. And so as we partake of the cup of the Lord in a few moments, let us remember that through the blood of Christ, God has become the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ.